really want your mind to be blown today? Ah, uh, well, my mind's certainly be shaken up a little bit. We have a guest that will take you into the realms of the ancient world as close as you get to opening the Ark of the Covenant and discovering that it's just a movie studio prop. It's all on open loops. Get ready. I hate snakes. We got David Daniel Gonzalez of Mystic Skeptic Radio Show. What are we going to talk about, you're asking? Honestly, everything you have here that your show's about is everything I'm interested in. So, and, and you saw that in my post. I mean, you, when, when, when I was reaching out for guests, I said, give me mind control experts, UFOs, conspiracy theories, spirituality, religion, life coaches, hypnosis, uh, all these kind of things that I've been fascinated by my entire life. And you were like, well, you know, I, I know I study religious philosophy and, but then I go to your skept, mystic skeptic radio show podcast, uh, which is available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts. I uh, know you, you have a Buzzsprout website uh, and the podcast sounds just like what I'm trying to go for with open loops, honestly. Uh, exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. So with that said, here's what I was curious about. When anybody ever brings up that whenever, whenever anyone puts skeptic in their description next to anything mystical, that automatically makes me just think you're like 100% James Randi, Michael Shermer, like debunking, taking away the magic, taking away the, you know, it, it, but you're still like looking at conspiracies and stuff. So I guess I wanted to start with philosophically, when you're doing a mystic skeptic radio show, are you in the middle? Are you a skeptic? Are you a mystic? Where does your current philosophy, where, where does it lie? Well, um, you know, I, I was just thinking about it today because, you know, I have a lot of friends who are very absolutist. So they'll mm. tell you, this is the way, the right political perspective, or this is the right religious perspective, or this is the only um, source of answers. And we live in a postmodern world where even those ideas of having right and wrong have been already questioned and debunked. So in a sense, I am old school in that I want to find uh, a source of truth or I want to be able to measure truth. Kind of like the scientific movement started with the idea of like, you know, I don't know if you ever heard this, but um, back in the day, they thought that birds came out of trees. Hmm. Because if you observe nature, you would see that that's where they fly out of, fly into. So people, just by observing nature, they say, well, that's how, how it is. And then they started testing it and they found the eggs and they realized how they, that's where they nest and that's where they live. So in the same way, if someone tells you, well, I know that um, Bigfoot is real and it's like, well, you can believe that and that's good for you, but like, is there any evidence? 
And there's yeah. been thousands of shows that claim they have evidence. They claim they found him or the, the group of, uh, of ape-like beings. And there's still no physical evidence other than some footprints here and there or some hair. That, and there's a show where they went to Tibet and they found um, a head crest worn by a Tibetan monk. They claim to have the Yeti uh, hair. And the guy wouldn't let him test it on a DNA lab. So that, that is, you know, you, you put it to the test. You try to find discernible truths based on the information available. There are some issues such as the existence of God, existence of aliens that are very difficult to measure because like in an experiment, you cannot recreate the event. And that, so it's up to someone's faith or someone's understanding of the universe for it to fit within that paradigm. But you still have to use our senses and you have to use our ability to uh, study and, and learn to, to assess if there's any credibility to these claims. And that's mm. what I think that we are losing. When you listen to Coast to Coast, when you listen to Ancient Aliens or any of these shows in the Gaia Network, they just give you a bunch of information that there is no verifiable sources. So mm. people rant about their experiences or their theories, but all they show you is like a little image or some uh, historical connection, but there's no way to go back and say, well, is it really doing that? And I think that that type of uh, poorly researched and poorly based uh, ideas became popular in the height of the Da Vinci Code um, mm. book where he was making these weird associations that had no, um, no true uh, history behind them. They were just very well um, written to make them seem like they did. And, right. and he even took the idea from someone else who was basing it on some mythological stories from France. So you can build a case for anything based on a lot of different things, but can you really... Um, bet your life on it and and i think that um we're coming to the point where people believe things blindly and so when you talk about religious philosophy i always have a problem with cults i always have problems mm -hmm. with religions that are manipulative and who are trying to uh, push ideas that are counterintuitive and that's where the skeptic part comes from but like you said if you believe in magic not in the sense of being able to make stuff come out of a hat but in the, in the glorious um, like, um, beauty of life and the ability for things to happen, um, positive things to happen or influence the world in a positive way, then skepticism actually leads you to a very um, dark place because you feel that everybody's lying to you. Everybody mm. is living a, a, a lie. So we have to be open. That's where the mystical component comes in. And you have to differentiate between being a mystic and being um, someone who, who's fantastical or myth-oriented. And that's something else that, that I try to discuss in my show is that mythical thinking has actually created some of the most destructive groups in, in our history because they are trying to generate this type of euphoria to support causes that are very uh, evil. So we have to be mystical in the sense of open to to spirituality, open to positive uh, ideas, and at the same time be able to test those ideas to see if there is any benefit for humanity. 
Because you can believe anything you want, but the question is how does it affect other people and how does it affect you? And there's healthy and unhealthy forms of, of belief, and that's, that's what the mystic and skeptic is, is supposed to do. That's very interesting. It's, a, it's well, you know, I, I'm wondering, because I really want to kind of break down what you said in the sense of, uh, uh, well, for instance, what was that? There was a book that Richard Dawkins came out with a couple of years ago and sort of Richard Dawkins, uh, his whole thing beyond just the God delusion is that you can find the beauty. Uh, you can have a mystical experience through looking at the intricacies of science. And to me, it seems like you're not 100% materialist, but at the same time, I, I guess I'm wondering, David, like, is there anything, do you have any belief system uh, that supports anything that someone might talk about on a paranormal radio show or supernatural? Like, is there anything in your wheelhouse that would make you, if you were like, yes, but I do believe that uh, there is, I mean, I, I suppose God could even be that. Like, how weird does it get for, like, a mainstream audience talking to you for the first time and learning about everything you've thought in this world? Well, you know, I don't want to fall into parallelomania. That's another uh, bit people mind where if you see something that is similar to something else, and they must be connected or mm. um, they, is, everything is the same. So I had on my show uh, two gentlemen who are, they think or they say that they're UFO experts. One is debunks UFOs um, because he thinks that um, there's not enough evidence or it's not something that, that is tangible. And the other one thing, um, they both believe the same thing, but they, they take different approaches. The other one says that UFOs are actually demons and mm. they're, they're the, the satanic realm of, of the devil has come up with this um, scheme of trying to confuse people by representing themselves as aliens interesting so people won't believe in god and they won't believe in the uh, demonic realm so to secularize them or to make them more new age influence they pretend to be these other beings that have nothing to do with god nothing to do with spirituality and that's how they confuse people so me listening to that it makes sense but it doesn't make sense because mm. that's when you start using logic and it's like why would the devil go through all that work and why would he um you know, they say he's deceitful, but that's just silly. Yeah. But if someone says, you know, I was asleep and this being appeared to me and it, uh, it glowed or it, it was dar a dark figure, then we can go into, okay, let's say that there is a spiritual realm or let's say it's not spiritual in the sense of what we know, but let's say that it is another dimension, another um, uh, place. And that person, that being is manifesting themselves in our um, you know, are discernible um, elements, then you can interpret whatever that is happening based on your own beliefs. So someone might think they're an angel. Someone might think that they're a devil. Someone might think is they're an alien. Someone might think it's a hallucination. So the question is, did it happen to begin with? And, mm. and if, if you use scientific knowledge, the, the biggest probability is that it never even happened, that the person was, ate something bad and then they started having, um, you know, uh, their mind started playing tricks on them. So for me, that is the baseline. We go to 
the natural explanation. Mm. But uh, I had a mentor that told me that if you always dismiss people's uh, spiritual or paranormal perspectives, you might miss out on something. So uh, I, there's a fantastic podcast. It's, it's actually a, a very sad story, but it's about women who have been uh, killed and, and, and mistreated in Mexico and the border. Mm. And nobody could solve the crime. There, this crime has been going on for 20 years. Nobody could solve it. And one of the mothers of the, the victims, she would pray for her daughter to appear to her and give her a clue. And it turns out that in one of her dreams, the young lady appeared to her and told her who was the culprit. And it happened that it was the person that she named. Wow. So you can say that that's coincidence, that you can say it's wishful thinking, that the mom was already on the right track and then her mind played um, tricks on her and, and led her to the right path. But what if um, God or the spirit um, system allowed for the mom to find comfort in her daughter and for her daughter to give her that clue that it was so crucial that multiple reporters, FBI agents, Mexican um, investigators, nobody could put the puzzle together but that one hint of information that was transferred to her from the other realm brought some closure to them. So to me, it's like, if you dismiss it, if you say it's just baloney, that people are crazy, they're superstitious, then you might not be able to, um, to even consider it. I am not a big uh, supporter of psychics or things like that, because a lot of them take advantage of people and they tell them what they want to hear and things like that. And I only had one psychic or someone who was connected to that in my show. But um, that, to me, that's, that's the thing. It's like we have to have the ability to hear everybody out and then uh, challenge them and then um, make an informed decision from what we have heard. So the, the premise of my show is uh, it's a little negative, but it's like I give everyone enough rope to hang themselves <laughs> in the sense of like, go ahead. But um, you don't want to become also a platform for people who are hateful or who are saying things that are destructive. So, so there are some, some guidelines for me. It's like, I don't feel comfortable just allowing someone to speak uh, craziness, but there has to be at least a sensitivity that there are some very heartfelt beliefs that people have and you can make sense of them And a true, like hardcore skeptic is not satisfied with, I don't know, or maybe, I am willing to work within that realm. Mm. So would you say you've ever had any kind of paranormal or supernatural experience in your life? Not per se, like nothing like, um, like super uh, blunt and, and something that is quantifiable. But I've had different inklings or experiences that are um, – you know, they fill you with warmth and they make you feel um, that your life has a purpose. So I, I, I also don't like self-help stuff because they kind of cheapen that, that experience. But there is this sense of like, uh, it's interesting and, and it's kind of also um, emotionally overwhelming. The song they play in that, um, that podcast about the women of Juarez, um, it's a Spanish song and it says, I was born with a purpose. Hmm. And it kind of connects how the women who are mostly dismissed as, as um, poor and immig they're immigrants within Mexico who are unknown and easily um, targets. 
the song says, I was born for a reason, I was born for a purpose. So I think that, that it's easy when you become a true skeptic to think that it's just a monotonous existence, that everything is chaos, that there's no real reason that we're here. But I believe that we have the ability to create meaning and to create purpose. And then we have little um, senses of heading in the right path. And, hmm. and, and that can be an emotional thing or, or, or a crutch or whatever. But I think that it's something that, that empowers us to, to move forward and to keep doing good work. Yeah, this is what I was wondering, you know, because if you say that self-help often is a cheaper version of that of self-actualization, what then uh, – and I know you have a lot of – you have some writings about religion, and religion is a topic that you've talked a lot about. You, you have a lot of episodes dedicated to the topic. Um, what do you think – what would you – if someone was like, hey, David, I want to become self-actualized – and I don't just want to go to a Tony Robbins seminar, you know, what would you, how would you point that person even in the right direction if they just seem totally lost? Well, you know, and that's, you know, I try to be unbiased and I try to be, um, you know, as, as reasonable a person as possible on my show, but I also have like another part of, of who I am. And there's actually, we're working on a, on a show where we're going to discuss uh, Christian heathenism. Uh, have you ever, have you ever heard of that? No, I, I love hedonism. So yeah, please tell me. <laughs> okay. So hedonism, the, the basic um, premise of it is that everything's about pleasure. Yes. And yes. it makes sense. You know, uh, my dad used to say life is all about sex, uh, power and money. Mm. And, that's, and that's a Freudian thing. And the, what you see if, if, as a skeptic, what you see is that the whole history of humanity has been about that. So Anybody that comes to you and says, no, it's all about love. It's all about kindness, right. justice, stuff like that. It's not, but we wish it would be different. So for me, if someone says, you know, I want to grow as a person, I want to connect with, with a higher, like, I don't like the term uh, higher power because it's, it's too nebulous. Mm. But let's say that they want to be the best they can be. I wouldn't point them to self-help uh, gurus or even spiritual self-help gurus like Joel Steen or people like that because they're giving them again a very uh, like it's all about packaging and selling things that you cannot sell you cannot mm. uh, you know uh, you know working in in counseling you you always say that people cannot get out of an addiction get out of a, a destructive relationship hit rock bottom and all these new age style philosophies never talk about that. Of course, people are wonderful. Of course, people were born pure and full of, of the ability to do great things, creativity and love and stuff like that. But until we come to terms with our own um, lack of um, interest in the well-being of others with our own selfishness, we're never going to be able to get past it. So mm. people say, well, if you deny your own selfishness, you're denying your humanity. So that would be the first way to destroy religion because religion is usually about self-control, about uh, right. feeling, feeling um, burdened by this lack of um, not being able to do everything you want. You, you're more responsible or more methodical. 
it's almost like a Boy Scouts um, manual where you have to follow the rules and stuff like that. In in modern spirituality, it's all about the self and and loving yourself and 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 caring for yourself and giving yourself kudos and and taps on the back, or whatever, uh, hugging yourself. Uh, you cannot get to that point of true self love until you have some just a little bit of self um like like the word would be disappointment with yourself hmm. uh, because if you're disappointed that you haven't been able to achieve the goal then you can grow then you can um look at it and work problem but if you if your mom tells you since you're a kid that you're wonderful and you're amazing and that all every woman should fall in love with you and that you're the the god's gift on earth then you're a brat and you have nothing to give to other people when you realize that you're that you're flawed when you realize that there's a lot of things you need to work on then that's when you can start the true uh process of self uh growth when you start acknowledging the problem i feel that in this has uh, trickled into every religion has trickled into every philosophy that now because there was, we lived in a medieval world of condemnation where mm. people were worms, where people were worthless, where the only thing that mattered was Jesus or God and everybody had to fall down in defeat and, and give themselves to him, that people now are on the other side where it's like, we are amazing and we're capable of everything. And, it's, and they take credit for stuff they've never done. It's like you say, well, we can go to the moon. And we, you've never done that. <laughs> right, right. As humanity we have. But until they realized that it was very difficult to do it is they were able to work through it to get there i feel the same way that we have to acknowledge our faults but not dwell in them and then build up from there and create a, a network of people who are supportive and create lifestyle changes that are positive to help us achieve those goals so so there's a lot of work to be done before you start thinking about what is the right religion what's the right philosophy what's the right path of enlightenment because even the Buddha said that um, all the things that people desired were, were negative. Hmm. You, ne you never hear that in American Buddhism. You never hear about the Eightfold Path the way that it was originally described as avoiding selfishness, avoiding uh, you know, physical uh, things like money and pleasure. They never, they never talk about that. They skip that part and they go straight to you becoming one with the universe and going to nirvana it's like without understanding that your world attachments is what's holding you down you're not able to get to the next level hmm interesting wow 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 so wait what specifically how does christian hedonism fit into that so um i'm not a christian but i know a lot of them and i work with a lot of them mm -hmm. and what is popular uh, where I live and, and around the evangelical world is this idea that God blesses you with money, with um, right. a beautiful spouse, a nice car, if you follow him through the, the person of Jesus. And that's never what the New Testament said, what Jesus said, what the, like the, the five books of Moses. None of that stuff ever says that. Right, there are right. Some there are some hints in, in ancient religion where those who do good things, good things happen to them. And it's based on a, on a, uh, on a system. It's more like a, a didactical system where if you behave, 
positive things happen. Or if you plow the land, you get the fruit of your labor. That's a basic system of all different belief systems. But they've created the sense that only people who are, do well in life, only people who are very successful are in the right path and are being blessed by God and God is, has grace over them. You know, another term for it is the gospel of money or whatever they call it. Um, it's is the something related to prosperity, gospel of prosperity. Mm. But now it's become this thing where God loves you so much that you must be blessed. And then people who are not blessed, then there's something wrong with them spiritually. So it's just um, you know, it's bullying people through religion like they have done through the centuries. Or is this uh, like mega churches and Joel Olstein, like you mentioned before? Right? Is that sort of what where we see that? most or yeah and, and what's hilarious is that that's what the the israelites were fighting against uh when they developed um, monotheism the babylonian mm. system was all about the the king or the the emperor having um all the power and all the slaves and everything because the gods had blessed him or he was a child of the gods or he had some type of favor and Abraham, who was a descendant of the Babylonians, came up with a system that was based on a personal relationship with God that influenced your family and your friends and everybody. And everybody had access to the creator of the universe instead of having this hierarchical system where only the people who are at the top have the power. So you see the Hebrew prophets always fighting against the kings and against the different leaders because right. they oppressed everyone and, and made them uh, squirm presence because they felt that they had the divine right to do that and now politicians uh, church leaders and every person in this country feels empowered in that way and that somehow someone who's who's a complete um horrible person just because they are very wealthy and they're very well connected that somehow god is working through them and it just it baffles me that people have fallen into that type of mentality wow yeah, you know, this makes me uh, wonder about perversions of religion. Like, it seems like, you know, you mentioned twice here, the Americans version of Buddhism, uh, or maybe the Western version to broaden that, and then America's take on Christianity. Do you think of all, what do you think is the most messed up, like, of all the modern manifestations of ancient religions or original religions i guess it doesn't have to be ancient what do you think is <laughs> who's screwed it up the most who's twisted it to be something completely different do you think it's christian hedonism or is there something that you know most of us aren't even aware about that they're just getting so wrong from the original doctrines well the problem is is that everything's up for interpretation i was just talking to um I was listening to, a, um, we had, one of our guests was Jonathan Roth. He's a um, professor of Jewish studies in San Jose, California. And we were talking about the Roman army and the different groups that were part of the Roman army. And I was telling him that I find ludicrous. They say that Jesus, uh, instead of being a, a peacemaker or um, a pacifist, that he was a revolutionary. Hmm. And if he was a revolutionary, he was the worst revolutionary that you ever heard of. Yeah, uh, what's that? 
he would have gotten beat up by Che Guevara and <laughs> right, and all those guys. right. Because he had no weapons, he had no army, he had no plan. The way that is depicted in the Gospels, he was roaming around with no resources, with a group of uh, what is it, ragtag people that right, had no right. skills. They say there was that one guy who was a zealot, so he carried a knife with him or was ready to fight. And then there was a couple of people that maybe um, they, they said somebody picked up some weapons and he told them, keep them just in case. Uh, and then Peter cut the guy's ear. So this idea that, that some revolutionaries in Latin America or even some people now in some of the, the movements that are rising at this time because of all the um, bad things that are going on, that they would try to quote him as someone who would use force to, to take down an oppressive system, it seems um, unacceptable hmm. and undefensible. But Jonathan Roth actually said that there's no evidence either way. So this mm. is a guy who's an expert and he's read all the sources and he knows about Jewish history of that time and what was going on during the Second Temple period. And his opinion said that you can go either way. Interesting. And the, the reason that I, that, that, that I would give him that is because there was um, a scholar um, about 60 years ago, Eisenberg, I believe was, was his name, who wrote a whole book about how Jesus was a revolutionary. And he found sources to connect him in those ways. So it's, I think that would be a minority position. It's a creative interpretation of what could he have done. So that's the problem is that you can have someone who would say, Jesus was rich. And you would say, well, how, how, how do you support that? And he's like, mm. well, it says that he had a bunch of women who supported his ministry. So we'll let him walk around in robes, like, like messed up clothes. Maybe they gave him a, a nice cloak and maybe they, they fed him or whatever. So he has supporters and, and they, what they try to do, they try to impose their own um, experience onto him. Mm. And you see that in Islam where people see themselves uh, identified with, with um, Muhammad so now Muhammad somehow supports whatever they're doing. So that's the, that's the challenge is that we weren't there and all we have is writings and maybe a couple of corroborating uh, uh, other sources. So people say, well, American Buddhism is not like ancient Buddhism because we know that the Buddha was a prince and he gave everything up to go become a monk and become one with, with Nirvana. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that... Um, every person that follows his teachings should do the same or since it's only a philosophy to a lot of people can you incorporate these ideas without having to leave everything behind and become a secluded person well to me that's a in inconsistent uh, because the same would go for jesus if jesus was truly a poor man and he rode a donkey how can you now claim that it's okay to be full of you know the pope has a throne and he has all these yeah. servants and stuff like that how can you justify that and say well it's a different time period he brought in the kingdom and now the kingdom is realized and i guess people could say that about buddhism the buddha sacrifices life and set the example and not everybody can achieve it so we do what we can with what we have mm. so everybody's gonna come up with their way to incorporate into their own lives and a lot of people 
can say that I'm being judgy, that like, who am I to say what's the right way or the wrong way to follow their own religion? But if you go to the original sources and there's absolutely nothing about, you know, and this is the biggest problem. Jesus said, do not hoard money because you cannot take it with you when you die. Hmm. How is it that all you see talked about by these mega churches is that it's all about the dough? Like right. it just makes no sense. What is the origin of that? I, I, I don't remember if we covered that. Was there, do you think there was a defining moment where someone was like, oh, we can start bringing money into this conversation? Have you charted the history of that? Well, it's just, you know, it goes back to the medieval times where, you know, it's really easy to do people. And that's, that's the problem. So, you know, you, you would go into a small town and you already brought everybody to the faith. So they know the basic principles. And you say, listen, we're going to build this cathedral and we need everybody to pitch in. And they're like, well, we barely have enough to eat. And they're like, doesn't God deserve the best? Do you really want us to create a temple to God that doesn't have the best um, jewels and ornaments and stuff like that. And they would uh, convince people to do that. But you see that with anybody. You would say, well, why is uh, Tony Robbins uh, so rich? Why doesn't he just give away his, his message? Well, he right. has the right to, the, to, um, to obtain a benefit from his wisdom. And you have to pay $2,000 to the biggest conference. Why not? Every other person who is knowledgeable of any subject charges for their services. So then, you know, so you apply the same rules for the secular world to the religious world, and then you end up in the same place. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it, um, (laughs) what you made me think of when, when you said that it probably started in medieval era was that also I feel like, and I know you've talked about this topic on your show, that a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes and, and, and things about money lending sort of came around then. I, I, I don't know the exact history, but what's interesting is that in some ways, it's like there's a charlatanism of money going on in Christianity too that's not being addressed here. Like, let's, I, I don't know if there was like, those things came in tandem. There was like an anti-Jewish thing and a Christian, Christians asking for money for their cause and those sort of like, I just think it's interesting. I don't know what the relationship is or if there is any. Well, it would be interesting to, to figure out if, you know, if your priest told you, you cannot go to heaven unless you give indulgences, mm. unless you, you, you bribe the priest so he can get you a place in heaven that you would have to go ask a Jew for money because none of your Christian friends would lend you any money because it was a sin for Christians to charge interest on money um, borrowed. Interesting. Interesting. So since Jews weren't part of the kingdom, they could do that, but then you would blame the Jews for being greedy for doing Right, right. Do you, uh, who do you think, my grandfather, I, I had a really great conversation with him when he was alive. He was a... Uh, American historian and biblical, ancient biblical historian as well, an archaeologist. He collected things uh, from all religions. And one time I asked him as I was getting more into my atheist phase, this was like 16, 17, um, I said, Grandpa, you know, do you think there's a God? And his defense that God existed was that he thought, at least he said, 
that he couldn't figure out a reason. He couldn't figure out an explanation for the Torah beyond something mystical. Uh, now, you know, he definitely had conversations with other scholars and researchers that believed it could have been a group of men that wrote it or one man that wrote it, uh, all that kind of thing. I'm curious, in your opinion, based on all your research and who you've talked to, who do you think wrote the Old Testament? Where, where have you landed on that? I'm going to throw a curveball at you. <laughs> okay. So do you know much about Freud? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a scholar by any means, but. So, so Freud was born Jewish, but I don't know what happened when he was a kid. I think he was adopted by a Catholic family. Right. And he was raised Catholic, but he knew he had Jewish ancestry. And um, so one day uh, he invited this guy who, who was a, a Jewish scholar to his house. And he had a copy of the Sohar. Hmm. And, and they couldn't believe it because this guy had been trashing um, God and the idea of God um, through all his writings. And, and uh, Freud really loved Greek mythology. And he felt that every trauma or every psychological um, issue was connected to the mythological stories. So Jews already felt that this, he was kind of like, a, you know, he was the Spinoza of the, the 1900s. He was he was a controversial guy, who, right? Of course, who had a Jewish connection, but they didn't know where it was coming. So then he's like, "Hey, I have a manuscript for my new book," and the guy's like, "Okay." Well, first of all, why do you have a copy of the Sohar? And he's like, "You know, I like all kinds of mythology, Jewish mythology, Greek mythology, whatever." And the Sohar is a very complicated book, and we can talk about that some other time. But uh, so that was surprising. So then he gives him the manuscript, and he's like, "Check it out." So. The guy reads like the first page and he throws it on the ground and takes off. And, and Freud's like, what, what happened? What's the problem? So the book that Freud had written was called um, Moses and Monotheism, I believe. Hmm. And in that book, he describes that Moses was um, a hero of the Hebrews that either took them out of Egypt or led them to uh, the Holy Land. And once he did what he was supposed to, the people rebelled and killed him. And they built uh, Judaism on this fear of a father figure hmm. and, and how they, they were um, regretting or you know, grieving their sin of murdering him. Interesting. So the Jewish guy was so angry because he's like, how dare you? We've been um, blamed for killing Jesus the God of the Christians through the centuries. And now we are at fault for killing God himself. Hmm. How can you do that? So that's what um, was ridiculous is that if you take this super skeptical perspective and you deny that there's anything supernatural about any book, but let's, let's be specific about um, Judeo uh, monotheism. Then you can come up with all kinds of different theories. And the biggest issue with atheists with the, with the Torah is that the, the way that God is portrayed to them, and, and I really don't understand how can they say this, is that he sounds like a three-year-old. Right. So they say, well, you know, go and fight the Canaanites and, and slaughter them or, you know, uh, don't take prisoners or whatever. Oh, he, he's so temperamental. How can anybody follow a temperamental guy? 
and it's like the only way you can follow a temperamental God is because he can relate to you. If you feel that, that God is this amorphous source uh, of, of energy or whatever that has no relation to humanity, that is completely devoid of emotion, then you have no way to experience it. Mm. But then the issue, and this is where we get into religious philosophy, is that God is being um, imagined in our own um, terms. So instead of us being made in the image of God, he's made, being made into our image. Right. So if God is a grumpy old man that every time that we disappoint him, he strikes us or he uh, scolds us or something like that, that's where Freud got his idea. The problem is, is that God is also a beneficent. Nobody would follow the idea of God if God was all wrath and all destruction. Um, in, but in Judaism, you have the idea that both good and bad come from God. And for Christians, that's very difficult to chew on because they have a system that you have the devil who has almost like the same amount of power as God does. And it's like a Dungeons and Dragons battle. <laughs> right, and, right. And in Judaism, uh, the devil of Satan is, is um, more of a dog in a leash that he unleashes whenever he wants to and then he brings back in. So if you say that the Torah is supernatural, there's, there's very uh, simplistic ideas. Like you hear different rabbis say, well, um, there was, uh, was it 6 million people that saw it? The, they saw the revelation of Sinai? And they say, mm. no other religion has that many witnesses. And it's like, yeah, but we only have one uh, account. So you, yeah. So how can you verify that there was 6 million people there? You have to believe that, the, that what the guy said, that there was 6 million people. And, and then what makes it supernatural is that it has ideas that are foreign to that, that era. And then you talk to an archaeologist and they say, no, it doesn't. People worship in a similar manner in, in Cana or the Hittites. People worship in a similar manner with the Egyptians or the Babylonians. So what makes this so unique? And, you know, it would take a long time for me to discuss the things that make it unique. But like I was saying, to me, the, the aspect of self-reflection is something you don't see in many religions. Hmm. So that the prophets of the Torah are able to uh, look within themselves and see their own faults and they're able to describe them and then they're able to challenge people that have those faults to me that that is supernatural because people are generally all about self-aggrandizement interesting you, you would never uh if if abraham was was writing um his own account he would say you know i'm the smartest i'm the most beautiful i'm the most uh, knowledgeable he would never say, you know, I'm nobody, God, why are you talking to me? Uh, I think Moses did that. Like, and then he said, well, if you say that you're the most humble, then you're not that humble. So, yeah. then, so then they say that's, you know, so I was part of a free thinker group in college. And you can come up with a list of how ridiculous the Bible is, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But then we would have to do a counterclaim. And it's like, okay, it's ridiculous because there's things that are very difficult and challenging, but then how much is it out of the ordinary and amazing? So I think it's, you know, like everything, you have to look at the pros and cons. And in Judaism, you have the ability to question and to look at, at positives and negatives and work within both. 
in Christianity and other religions is very like one way or the highway. Mm. So I think that's where your, your grandfather was, was amazed by the Torah because he did not only have the, the knowledge of the text, he had the knowledge of the traditions and the understanding of the, the history of it. So then it was, it was a, a very vast um, like knowledge base that he was working with. And the challenge that we have as Jews talking to people who, who don't have that is that they want to toss it out as, as meaningless when to us is meaningful because it has um, all these layers. Yeah. And the layers have different ways you can connect to it. But that's a lot to ask for people who don't have that relationship to it as a people or as, um, as even individuals. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, man, I just lost my train of thought. You know, that's so, I mean, I, I, I definitely think you've distilled something to me about, I, it, it does definitely feel like in, you know, traditional discourse about religion, a, a lot of attention goes towards Jesus. Now, I know that, yeah, their Christianity is the uh, I believe even just by numbers more popular, so attention is going to go there. But uh, I, I don't feel like traditionally there is a lot of breaking down the Old Testament uh, as much as there could be. I, I think it's such an interesting field. Um, do, do you think that that will ever turn around, that people are going to like move towards that original Torah again to distill more of those lessons? Well, and that's why we talk a lot about anti-Semitism on my show. It's actually becoming like the number one topic because it's just unbelievable the amount of ignorance there is out there about Jews, about their texts, about their understanding of the world and stuff like that. And I took a class, speaking of psychology, I took a class called, um, uh, was it a biblical psychology? Hmm. And it's laughable if you look at it from a scientific standpoint, because like there's only one psychology how can you break it down into biblical psychology? It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Christian counseling. What is Christian? Is it a, is counseling or is Christian? If you have both, then you are watering down the the system. And now there's Jewish counseling too. But biblical right. psychology was interesting because it took all the biblical stories from the Old Testament and and used them to analyze um, people's. Um, mental health so just like huh. i was saying that freud would use greek mythology in this instance we use jewish uh stories or, or israelite uh, so people will call them myths or whatever but it was fascinating that in every story that that we read there was always hope so if you look at the uh, at the greek stories there's always death there's always incest there's always destructive stuff maybe there's a little bit of hope like some guy makes it out but uh i think that's why freud liked it because they were very real like they weren't these fluffy stories but the bible has very real stories too and i remember i wrote my verbatim about suicide and i use the story of saul and king saul uh killed himself when he couldn't win a battle and and king david kept on getting more popular and so he felt some type of um, despair and he fell over his own sword. So mm. to me, that story was very true. It was very human. And that's, that's what's amazing about uh, the Old Testament is that you find these very human stories 
within this, what some people call like magical book that has all these other supernatural things in it. And the same thing with uh, the story of Jacob and all these stories. Um, I know one about depression was the life of, of uh, Jonah. Hmm. And uh, so if you see how they react to these circumstances, you can actually extract um, values and um, ideas to help someone cope with their experience. So I think that if people were open to it and, you know, we have to work with the Christian community because they honor the same texts that we do, but they, they try to, they, to some, the, the Old Testament is important because it points to the New Testament to others. It's too, it's too real. It's too violent. It's too old school. And they just want the happy stuff. Right. And, and if, if the Muslim community had, uh, they have some type of respect to, for, for um, the history of the Israelites, but they have their own version. They could also, we could all work together to kind of use that as a basis for understanding the, the world. But, you know, everybody has their political or, or sectarian versions of what happened. So I found it very, um, very insightful. And, and the thing is, you can only find insight in things that matter to you. So what's happened with the more secularization of the Jewish community is that a lot of these things don't have meaning anymore and it's hard to incorporate them to the modern life. So one thing that I talk about a lot in my show is that to the modern man, a lot of those stories seem um, outrageous or are meaningless because they, they're not even capable of putting themselves in that type of mentality of that ancient world. But in the Muslim community, you see that sometimes they're almost like still in that mindset. Hmm. So, so for Jews to, to judge Muslims as backwards or in a different um, you know, mentality, whatever, they, they're still thinking in the terms of, you know, how do you react to someone committing a crime and like everything is capital punishment or the way that, that women are dressed or men are, are behave. It's very like, biblical in the sense of like it's like an old middle eastern traditional culture that to us it seems so foreign it's almost alien so so we would have to kind of be more cult, uh, culturalized to be able to even understand some of the concepts <laughs> oh my gosh you know david i've said to all, <laughs> almost every guest just because i'm naturally like a curious person that i'd love to have them on again and talk forever but Again, this is true because you've you've every single time you've answered, I like get three more questions. Uh, but you know what I think will be an interesting question to sort of tie things in, because I I'm curious your take on this. Why do you think there are less Jewish conspiracy theorists than Christian ones? So the actual people that come up with conspiracies, there's fewer Jews that that have them. I believe so. I believe so. I believe at least I feel like I've seen a lot of and maybe it's the Trump thing. Maybe it's the fact that QAnon is a very Trump based thing. The, of course, there are communities of Jews, Orthodox communities. Specifically, I'm thinking of that support Donald Trump. Uh, but I believe in general conspiracy theories from what I've seen are more popular and Christian sex than jewish ones well, people are going to get offended but uh we we another show that, that we're going to broadcast on our side of the, of the program is that um 
there's this idea of the education level. So uh, when we were talking, I brought in a rabbi who was talking, we were talking about all the turmoil that's going on and how Jews are being blamed for it. And we were talking about different communities who have been able to thrive in the U.S. They thrive because they have a more ancient um, tradition that leads them to be able to use the resources in the most successful ways. So Jews, when they came to America, most of them were dirt poor, but they were, um, they were literate. Hmm. So if, if you... If you come from from uh, Russia, from a small town in Russia, and you know, you know Hebrew, and you know, you know a little bit of Hebrew, and you know Russian or some dialect from over there, you can pick up English. You can uh, study math. You can study science, and slowly, next thing you know, you become an accountant or something, and you're able to pass that on to the next generation. So, so the ability of being literate, even in medieval times, allowed Jews to be able to survive. People say. How did they survive when everybody was killing them? Everybody was tossing them out, everybody? Because yeah. they had a, a very vast network where they all spoke Hebrew to each other and they could uh, have uh, merchants and all that. So right now, the people that come up with the most conspiracies are the people that are the less educated. Uh, <laughs> that is a controversial opinion. <laughs> but what's interesting is that this guy was saying yesterday when I was looking up some stuff, he was saying, the more educated you become, the more stupid you are. So, so even that idea that, that scientists or people who are experts on their field don't know what the heck they're talking about, that is an ignorant person's perspective. Hmm. That, that now all the people that we trust with our lives, like you, if you have, you know, if you cut your arm, you don't go to a shaman and you ask them to fix it because the shaman doesn't know anything about blood and about infections and stuff like that. You go to a doctor. Well, now the magical thinking has uh, gotten so strong in our culture that doctors are a bunch of liars. Right. Because right. so-and-so had a bad experience with a doctor. So, uh, so it's not that the Jews um, are less easy to fall into these traps. Is that we have a more holistic uh, education because, you know, like in the Spanish um, times, the they would teach them science, technology, uh, Torah, and everything, just like in the Muslim community. So you don't hear from people who have this well-rounded education, all these fears being actualized in conspiracies. You usually hear from people who either are, are un, uneducated or are willfully ignorant. And to me, that's more dangerous when you purposely don't want to hear facts and build up your own reality. Wow, wow. Well, look, this has been very interesting. Uh, David Daniel Gonzalez, the host of Mystic Skeptic Radio Show. Uh, podcast Asking the Tough Questions. You can find out at, well, I'm going to link everything. I mean, I'm going to link your YouTube channel. Uh, your, your podcast available on all the platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And, you know, I might have to pick this up. I was curious about this. Your book, uh, The Demonology of Ancient Israel, The Truth About Demons, Possession, and Exorcism. Uh, I know it, it came out about two years ago, but that looks fascinating too. Well, if, I don't know if you're available. We can do a short uh, thing about that because I've been trying to 
lately pushed the book because um, I think it's an important topic. Uh, everybody, um, you know, so when you start talking about paranormal stuff, it's very easy to fall into traps there. I, I can solve a lot of issues with demonology and fear of possession and stuff like that if you just study the history of where it came from. Wow. Now we, we could do a probably a whole nother episode on that. Let's definitely do it. Yeah. I will put a link to that book. Um, <laughs> David, so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on to Open Loops. Uh, I hope to have you back again. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Take care. What a fascinating episode. Disclaimer, I don't agree with everything he said necessarily. Uh, he was pretty harsh on some things. Took very specific stance on, you know, uh, why certain cultures might be more susceptible to things than other cultures. Um, hey, it's freedom of speech. Don't know if I fully agree. Uh, I'm more than willing to have anybody on to challenge David Daniel Gonzalez. And the thing I like about David is that he's open to the challenge. Um, his show is all about that kind of debate. It's open to questioning and, and really getting at the issues. So, you know, I, I find his commentary fascinating. It was a very unique perspective and definitely going to have him on again to talk all about demonology and why or why not it's completely bogus or real. Oh boy, I've heard both sides, but you know what, David? I, I appreciate that he operates somewhere in the middle. Uh, so, Open Loops with Greg Forsting concludes. Feel free to like, subscribe, leave a review. Uh, again, Michelle Obama's podcast is out, but leaving a review of her show and telling people that Open Loops is just like it could always help. It could always help. All right, everybody. I promise that's the last time I'll make you do the Michelle Obama trolling this week. Take care.